shelves. I have a huge hardcover book called Beatles Gear. It was given to me one Christmas by Larry Shuler. And it goes through every piece of gear that the Beatles ever used. Cool book. A couple of guitars in there that are awful nice to add to my collection. So uh, the Beatles recorded 213 songs, 188 originals, and 25 covers. But of those, the interesting fact that I want to bring to light is that Ringo only sings lead on 11 songs. And of those 11 that he sang lead on, by far the most famous one um, of them, because you probably, most of you probably don't even know most of the ones that he sang lead on, like Octopus Party, right? You know that song? <laughs> sang lead on that, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> You're like, what? Yeah. Um, I remember the Beatles get weirder and weirder as time goes on, so by the time you get to the later albums, it's a, yeah, anyway. Um, but there's a song about a guy who's lost his girl and he's lonely, but it's going to be okay, right? Because he sings, I get by with a little help from my friends. Probably the most famous Beatles song sung by Ringo, in fact, the Ringo's All-Star Band, when they still could, when they conclude their shows, they finish with that song. We're not meant to go through life on our own. And certainly the church is not meant to be just a, a group of people doing everything, you know, with a small group doing stuff and everybody else being spectators. All you gotta do is read through the New Testament and pick out one of the 59 times that it says something about one another. 59 one another statements in the New Testament to realize that God intends us to be a community where everybody participates, where everybody has a part. Now last week, you recall, Paul was in Athens. He uh, ends up presenting the gospel to the leading thinkers of Athens at the time, the Areopagus. And as often as the case, of course, he gets a mixed reception, right? Um, some believed, some thought he was a nutcase, some were kind of like, eh, we got to think about it. But we did see how well Paul was able to understand and kind of read the culture around him and find the places where the story of Jesus' death and resurrection or the gospel intersected with the Greek culture and the Greek philosophy of the time. And that's a great lesson for us is that we need to understand our culture and that we need to adapt how we present eternal truths in ways that speak to contemporary hearers. Well, this Sunday is going to be our last Sunday in the book of Acts for a while. We're now two-thirds way. We're two-thirds of the way through. We made it through the first third the last time we were in Acts. Now we made it through about the second third, and then someday I'll come back and we'll finish the last part. Clark will talk me into it eventually, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, next Sunday, Advent begins, and um, really, I mean, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Next Sunday, the Christmas tree will be up, and Jeannie will be down here talking to the kids and handing out little gold chocolate coins. I would like to point out that in 20-some years of Advent celebrations and of Jeannie being down here with the little kids for the children's Advent lesson, never has she turned around and tossed me a gold. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not hinting or anything. I'm just saying. Point that out. It's a fact. 
So uh, Dr. Dan Andrews and I are going to be alternating Sundays talking about the kings of Christmas. So I will start next Sunday talking about King Herod, and then he will talk about uh, Joseph, and you probably never thought of Joseph as a king, but he will explain that to you. And then the third Sunday of Advent, I will talk about my favorite Christmas characters and genies, the Magi. And then, of course, the last Sunday of Advent, King Jesus. And so it should be a, a great time. But for today, we're going to pick up at Acts chapter 18, where Paul makes some new friends and, of course, gets into new trouble. Acts 18, starting at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. They were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul leaves Athens, and he heads to the main city in Macedonia, Corinth. Because that was the leading city at that time. He encounters a husband and a wife who come from Rome. They're originally from Pontus, which is in northeastern Asia Minor. So if you're thinking of Turkey, right, Asia Minor, Pontus is kind of this up part, on the Black Sea. Now history is unclear why Claudius kicked out all the Jews from Rome. This happens in AD 49. Many historians believe that it is precisely because the Jews were in such an uproar over the rapid spread of the gospel that they were causing problems. And so Claudius, rather than deal with that, because remember, there's one thing we know about the Romans, is they like to order. He just kicked all the Jews out of Rome. He's like, whatever, it's not going to be my problem. You're all out of here. That probably did not help Jewish <coughs> Christian relations at the time. But clearly the gospel had gotten to Rome. And Aquila and Priscilla are believers when Paul meets them. These three team up. Told they're all tent makers by trade. Paul was sometimes, we you know, supported by others, such as in Philippi, where it's pretty clear that when he's in Philippi, Lydia was taking care of him. She was a businesswoman who was of some considerable means, and so she took care of him. Uh, and the other missionaries, Silas and Timothy. Uh, but sometimes he just worked to pay his own way. And, you know, that kind of, for a long time in modern missions, most missionaries are just supported by, by churches uh, and individuals giving. Um, but more and more missionaries are going as skilled workers today. It's, uh, in fact, it's often the only way sometimes to minister in certain parts of the world where you can't just be an, openly be a missionary there. We have missionaries that we support who are partially supported by gifts and giving and partially support themselves by doing actual, real, skilled labor in the places where they're at while they're doing their gospel work. Now, everything goes well while they're there. I'm not going to read the next big section of chapter 18. I'm just going to summarize it for you. Timothy and Silas finally catch up to Paul. I'm trying to kind of remember they were supposed to meet him in Athens, but they never got there, apparently. And Paul's already left Athens, and he's on the corn, so I'm always imagining Timothy and Silas just playing catch-up, trying to catch up to Paul. And they get there, and together with Priscilla and Aquila, um, they make numerous converts, both among the Jews and the Gentiles. Which means, as in every other city Paul ever goes to, trouble gets stirred up. And so Paul and company get in trouble, and they are drugged before the tribunal, which is centered in Corinth. And the tribunal's name is Gallio. And Gallio, 
Not Galileo like Ernest and Julius, just Galileo. And not Galileo, he didn't have a telescope. But um, he, uh, they're, they're drug in front of uh, the tribunal by some angry Jews. But something happens this time that has not happened before. Now, I'm not sure why. I don't know if Galileo just didn't care, or if Galileo had maybe already heard from his, he would have been like over the officials in Philippi that illegally arrested Paul and Silas and put him in jail, even though they were Roman citizens. He maybe had heard from them, hey, watch out for these guys. They're Roman citizens, and they're not really doing anything, but they're going to cause trouble. Trouble's gonna, trouble follows these guys everywhere they go. So maybe he didn't care. Maybe he'd already heard about them or whatever. Um, but this all backfires because when they're drugged before Gallio, Gallio looks at him and goes, you know what? This is all about your, your laws and scriptures and whatever. Go away. I don't want to hear it. Goodbye. And he kicks him out. So Paul and company spend about a year and a half in Corinth. Paul has a vision not to leave because God would protect him. And after about a year and a half, they pack up and they head back the way they came. And they travel to Ephesus. Verse 18. I'm dropping down to verse 18 now. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cancacre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. It's about a year and a half after, according to verse 11, Paul leaves Corinth, he heads back through Ephesus, and Aquila and Priscilla join up with him, and Paul leaves them there, and will eventually he gets all the way back to Antioch. Now we're not sure what vow Paul had made there, it talks about him making a vow and then cutting his hair, but it was common if you made some kind of vow to not cut your hair or beard at all. This implies that you have hair if you grow a beard. I would have been a bad apostle. Don't have much hair if I try to grow a beard. In fact, I hadn't shaved since Wednesday this morning. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, maybe this and I had a little bit of draw side. It's getting cold. I can maybe grow a beard. Maybe this will be the time that that strip right here would actually grow some hair. No. Hair here. Hair here. Butter half-inch wide strip all the way down. Nothing grows. Face gets sliced off as a kid or something. What is the deal? You probably fall on my face lots of times. You probably push me out. So I don't know. So it was very disappointing because I thought maybe this would be the time. Like I have the 12,000 other times that I've gotten three or four days into not shaving and gone, I'm going to grow a beard and looked and go, no, I'm not going to do this time. Maybe I could grow it up and cut some off and glue some on here. Now I do have girls right here, so maybe if I just let this grow really long, I can grow a really long mustache. It's not going to happen, so just, yeah, don't hold your breath. So we're not sure, but it was very common to not shave at all during that time, not even keep your hair trimmed or your beard trimmed. And so now his vow for whatever it was must be over. It's kind of like the Old Testament Nazarite vow in, in Numbers, if you don't want to look that up. Uh, but the main thing there is they get a great reception back in Ephesus, right? I mean, they want him to stay. They're like, man, we are so glad you're here. Dude, 
but I, I'm going to leave you Priscilla and Aquila. So obviously he had a lot of confidence in Priscilla and Aquila because he leaves them there with the Ephesian church and he heads back. And it's going to be a very good thing they stayed because an important figure, or one who will become important, is about to arrive. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Priscilla and Aquila are serving and instructing the Ephesian church. This guy who is all the way from Egypt arrives. Now Alexandria is in Egypt. Okay? The trip from Egypt to Ephesus, that's a, that's a, that's a long walk. He gets, he comes to, to Ephesus, and we're told that he's very, he's, he's very dedicated to the Lord, and he's a really good preacher. And this is a, this is a, you know, David Jeremiah sort of guy, Chuck Swindoll, right? But we're also told his knowledge of the Lord is not entirely complete. It says he knew only the baptism of John. Well, what does that mean? It means that he knew about repentance from sin, and he knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But he probably was lacking the full knowledge of Jesus' death and resurrection because he had not been baptized as a follower of Jesus. Fortunately, he got to Ephesus at a really lucky time because Priscilla and Aquila are there. And they took him aside, and they updated him on the gospel. And he obviously received this with humility, and he embraced it, because the church there in Ephesus, we're told then, is excited. He wants to go on to Greece, and they were excited to send him off to Greece to strengthen the churches there, and so they send letters of recommendation, and off goes Apollos to Achaia to strengthen those churches. purposely made this sermon short because I knew the pain would be great. So what can we learn from Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos in this chapter? I've got three lessons for you. Number one, we all have a role to play. A few years after his first trip to Corinth, Paul is going to write a letter to the Corinthians, we call it 1 Corinthians, about, there's going to be a section in that letter about how important every person in the church is. It is there we coined the term, the idea of the body of Christ. That each part of the body matters. You know, your little toe may not seem all that important until you lose it and have to develop your walking skills all over again. Because you'd be amazed how that little toe has to do with your balance. Your pituitary gland of you are going, what's a pituitary gland? The pituitary gland is about the size of a marble. It's kind of stuck in the middle of your head. 
You know if it stops working, every other system in your body will become dysregulated because the hormones it secretes help regulate every other system in your body. So it is with any local church. Every person that God has placed here has a function. That could be according to that person's spiritual gifting. It could be some other reason they're here. I don't know, but we all have a role, and oftentimes more than one, in our church. Everybody's got a role to play. And sometimes people are not living out their role. And when that is the case, it's like when the pituitary gland isn't working right. The body is dysregulated. Now that doesn't mean that every role in the church is front and center, or even that every role is constantly a spiritual one, whatever that means. Maybe that role is uh, helping to deal with some physical plant issues, like arranging for an emergency furnace replacement. Jacqueline said to me this morning, it's, it's the warmest, comfortablest bed in here in a long time. Yeah, makes you wonder how long that furnace was malfunctioning. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to be warm downstairs this afternoon because somebody was able to head that up when our old furnace reached its time to go to the great metal scrap. Because that furnace that went is the one that heats the downstairs. So if it was not working, you better hope the turkey's hot because everything else wouldn't be. Maybe your role's prayer warrior. I mean, I know people who can't come work on a work day or, you know, teach a class or whatever that might be. But they pray. They pray for me. They pray for you. They pray for all sorts of things all the time. And a lot of times those folks don't get much recognition in this life. But I'm going to tell you that I believe those prayer warriors, their mansion in glory is going to make Mar-a-Lago look like a dog kennel. We all matter. You matter. Not only to God, but to us, to one another. We all have a part in what goes on here. And all the parts matter. And maybe you're not sure what your part is. Well, then let's talk about that sometime, and I will either buy the coffee if you need help with that. We can figure it out. Because we all have a role. And that means if we all have a role, the second thing is that we, we need each other. If I have one criticism of young pastors, and I was a young pastor once, so I can criticize them now because I, I done done it. It's that they try to have their fingers in all the pies at church. I am not that way. Those of you who have known me for a while know I'm not that way. For example, we're about 80% done with some upgrades and some things that, that needed to happen here in our building that God has so graciously given us to worship and serve Him with. I can tell you that other than some things in my office, I had nothing to do with any of this, which is probably a good thing. I cheered from the side. tried to show me some flooring samples. What did I do? I was like, I don't care. <laughs> She's like, yeah, it's going to be your office. I'm like, I trust you more than I trust myself to do flooring. Please, whatever you choose, I'm going to be super happy with it. And am I super happy with it? I'm super happy with it. I love it. 
I mean, other than a couple things, I picked up my own chair. shoulders of our Sunday school teachers and wonder what they're teaching. Joe, do I look over your shoulder wondering what you know? I do not, right? I don't, I don't worry about, I don't look for what books they're using. If I could not trust them and if you could not trust them, they would not be teaching. I trust them. I know some pastors who literally, and by no, I mean I've served under them, who, who literally tell the Sunday school teachers what they can teach and what they can't teach. Well, since everybody has a role, then we all need each other to do our part for us to be a functional church. No one person can or should do everything. We have a team of people who rotate handling children's church. Praise God I do not have anything to do with that. Okay? You know what? You, you can't imagine the number of things that I would just forget about were it not for a certain person who from day one, the first day I started as your pastor, keeps me up to date on remembering things and handling a bazillion behind the scenes arrangements because I'm not that guy. But she's that gal. Let me put it this way. If you were sick and in the hospital, or you had a loved one die, and I was the one who had to arrange the flowers or get a meal to you, or whatever, you'd be hungry and waiting for Flowerama an awful long time. Because <laughs> it just wouldn't happen. Because I'd just forget. Or I'd be like, i got to get to that. And you'd already be out of the hospital and recovered, and suddenly these flowers would show up, and you'd be like, I was in the hospital three months ago. Right? sort of person, your primary minister partner might just be your spouse. Spouses make great teams. You notice if you read between the lines in this chapter, when it talks about them, it's always they. They made tents together. They helped explain the gospel more fully to Apollos. I get the impression from some preachers, okay, That they think in the early church, the men did all the doing, and the women sat on the sidelines making bread or something to serve in communion. If you read the Gospels, or if you look at the places women are mentioned in the book of Acts or in Paul's letters, okay, they are right there working alongside. And if you're married role in serving Christ, whether husband or wife, is, is probably not just your role, but maybe something you do together. Okay. Last thing, final thing I take away from this is we need to be humble with one another. I want you to imagine Apollos comes to heaven. Now remember, what is, how does Apollos describe? He was a great preacher. Right? He's, he's really, really smart and he's a great preacher. Okay? Super spicy guy. Everybody thinks he's the man. And then Priscilla and Aquila, they have to catch him after some meeting, right? And they say, hey, we think you're a cool brother. But there are some things you need to know to get fully updated on Jesus. And here they are. Now imagine if Apollos had been sort of like, hey, wait a minute. I got this, OK? 
like that than are like Apollos. To be honest with you, I've met way more Christians who are like that than who are like Apollos. We need to have an attitude that's truly teachable and humble. And of course, we know that's not what happens, right? Apollos is open, he's teachable, he's humble, he happily receives the full story about Jesus. He's like, oh, this is great! So much so that he's just he's anxious to get on with it and go tell others. So much so that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaks of Apollos as basically equal to him. So much so that among scholars, Apollos is considered the leading candidate to be the author of the book of Hebrews. As you know, no author is specified for that. Now, none of that would have happened if Apollos was not humble and teachable. We all need to be humble and teachable. And not just with the pastor or whatever, but, but with our peers. Or even with people maybe we don't consider even our peers. I mean, kind of seems like maybe it would have been one thing if Paul would have corrected Apollos. But Paul's gone, right? But he trusts Priscilla and Aquila enough that he's going to leave them in Ephesus. And so that's what he got. And Apollos could have maybe looked at him and just said, who are, who are you? But he didn't. He humbly and gratefully receives the truth and adjusts and serves accordingly. The Beatles once sang, I get by with a little help from my friends. And so it is with the church. We are here together to help one another get by in the best to serve our Lord together, to accomplish his mission. Each of us has some role to play. So on this Thanksgiving, my 22nd Thanksgiving as pastor of this local church. That's a lot of turkeys, folks. I am thankful for all of you who are serving and who are using your gifts and who are giving from your blessings and are doing your part among us. And I'm thankful that we have so many people here that recognize we need each other. And God has placed us here to love and to serve one another. And I'm thankful that together we are humbly growing and learning and becoming better people. Are we perfect? No, not yet. Probably we're getting closer. Yeah. But we are people who, who are working on increasingly becoming more like our Savior Jesus. People who are increasingly seeking to find ways to serve the Lord and serve one another. So at dinner this afternoon, which we're going to get to in just a few minutes, when you're sitting there, take a second and just look around and be thankful that we can enjoy the blessings of being part of a loving and growing church. Let's pray. Father, I am very thankful and thankful people that you brought here, the work that you're doing here, the love that we share through Jesus, so many people playing their part and doing their role and working hard together. Some of them, not the most glamorous things, but super important. So Father, I thank you and I give you thanks. Pray that we can become even more of the kind of people who serve you well. and give you the glory for it.